the University of Arizona Bio5 Institute, we bring together hundreds of multifaceted experts that include world-class bioscientists, engineers, physicians, and computational researchers. This team science approach is designed to ignite creative solutions to the many complex biological challenges facing our families and communities, and has resulted in disease prevention strategies, promising new therapies, innovative diagnostics and devices, and improved food sustainability. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Science Talks, a conversation hosted by the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. My name is Lisa Romero. Epigenetics, or the study of changes in organisms caused by modification of gene expression rather than alteration of the genetic code itself, is an important and complex field of study. The United Nations expects the world population to grow by 2 billion people over the next 30 years, and drought is worsening in Arizona and other states, which means increasing crop production is critical. However, climate change is making it difficult to keep up with the current demand, and scientists are seeking solutions for sustainable agriculture. Today, we're joined by scientist and Bio5 member, Dr. Rebecca Mosher. Dr. Mosher is the Associate Director of the School of Plant Sciences and Associate Professor of Genetics, Plant Sciences, and Applied Bioscience here at the U of A. She's a winner of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences Bart Cardin Early Career Faculty Teaching Award and is passionate about mentoring our next generation of scientists. Um, Thank you, Dr. Mosher, for being here today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, your work is, you know, really fascinating. Um, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about how it really exemplifies sort of the bio five model of this interdisciplinary approach to things and how um, sort of the lane, the main lane that you work in can really have so many implications for other things. I think that's what really interests me and in, in talking to you more. Um, but before we do that, I mean, tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, what brought you back to the UA, because I think you got your undergraduate degree here. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. I grew yeah. up in Tucson. Oh, you so, did? Uh, I yeah. didn't know that. What, what uh, high school did you go to? I went to Sabino High School. So nice. side kind of kid. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and went to UA. I'm actually a third generation wildcat. Uh, so my mom was a chemistry major in the 60s, one of the uh, few chem majors, <laughs> female chem right. majors, say, one of the few female chem students back then. Um, and her father was a uh, pharmacology, phar pharmacy uh, professor. Wow. Wow. Um, that's very cool. Good lineage yeah. going on there. So I grew <laughs> up um, kind of on campus, you know, going to chemistry camp yeah. and things like that, math camp as well. Um, and then you know came here uh, as an undergraduate, and then finally left for a while. But with family in Tucson, I really wanted to come back. So uh, yeah, UA was a, a top choice when I went looking for faculty positions. That's exciting. Uh, it sounds like early on, then you were kind of um, positioned in this sort of intersection of maybe a STEM STEM related future. Um, was there any at any point that that was like, I don't know that I want to follow in these footsteps or, I mean, was that kind of just a natural progression? 
No, it's, it's always been something I've loved. So I know sometimes um, many students can be inspired by hearing like the different paths that people take and that it takes some time to find out. In my case, I really did always know that this is what I wanted to do. Um, so that was easy for me. That's really, that's, you know, you're right. It's interesting as we do these podcasts, um, there you're, you're in the minority, which is interesting. I mean, I would think maybe it would be, uh, at least 50, 50, maybe a, a little bit on the other side, but yeah. And, um, it, it's just amazing how those that do know, do, do know. And, um, I, I find that really, really cool. Cause there's not a lot of us that end up where we thought we would. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I credit a lot of it with being on campus as a, as a high school student. So I competed in science fair and was involved in um, the high school biology research program, which is kind of part of UBERP. Yep. So even as kind of a 15, 16 year old, I was in laboratories learning about molecular biology, um, interacting with graduate students. Um, and so then when I was an undergrad and you know, you're taking some courses and maybe studying and exams doesn't seem like STEM is maybe a little less interesting when that's the aspect of it you're doing. But I already knew what research in a lab was like. Um, and so I could kind of push through the parts that were less appealing to me because I knew that's where I wanted to get to. Um, so that's something that, that I try to do a lot, not just have undergraduate research opportunities in my lab, but to get students as young as possible and show them this is what the career looks like. Um, do you want to work towards this career? That is amazing. Um, I think, as you know, our, our keys program, our bio five keys program, you know, uh, brings high schoolers to campus. And I literally just this morning was on a, a conversation with um, the foundation talking about some potential um, philanthropy for keys. And, you know, that's exactly what we were talking about is how um, that that experience being here on campus really does take away some of the the mystery, I guess, the, the negative mystery part of, you know, knowing that this might be something you want to do. And yeah. it is amazing how much that binds those students to the university very early. So that's, yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's, that's very cool. Well, so, I mean, fast forward to today, I mean, I guess, um, you know, in, in trying to very succinctly describe um, your work, which is, is, um, is impossible because it's complex and important in many different ways. But I mean, you essentially are a plant scientist, um, specifically focused in the area of epigenetics. Um, for those of us that are not scientists, um, talk a little bit about what is epigenetics. I know it's new, a newer terminology, I guess, if you will, in sort of science um, as it relates to um, genetics, genomics, how did those things all sort of interplay and, and how did you find your way um, to that? So um, epigenetics is, well, actually there's many definitions and, and sometimes people fight over them, but I'd say a commonly agreed idea is that epigenetics are chemical modifications, either of the DNA itself or very near to the DNA that affect whether that DNA is going to be used or not, right? I think sometimes um, non-scientists aren't as conscious of the fact that every cell in your body has the same DNA, meaning it has the same set of genes. 
but the genes that are important to produce skin cells are different than the genes that are important to produce your liver, right? And so some genes are turned on everywhere and many other genes are only turned on um, in particular places or under particular conditions, like maybe when you're hungry, a different set of genes get turned on. And so that process is called gene regulation. And one of the ways that genes can be regulated are by these little chemical marks. Um, and those chemical marks, um, my lab studies mostly DNA methylation, they can be, because they're physically attached to the DNA, they can be passed down when a cell divides that DNA methylation that is in both of the daughter cells. And what really interests me is how those marks aren't just passed through cell division, say, in, in one organism, but the way they might get passed from a parent to an offspring from one generation to the next. So that's my particular focus. So you you know, did your, you went through your education, uh, postdoc. Um, I know you, you've won some really prestigious um, awards and published. And I mean, how did you know that that was going to be the space that you, you ended up? Mm -hmm. um, was there, was there a class? Was there a project? Was there, you know, was it a focus of your postdoc program? I mean, how, because I mean, again, I don't think even people like you that maybe knew all along that they wanted to be a scientist maybe would have imagined that that's an area that they would have started. Yeah. So um, when I started graduate school, I would say epigenetics, um, it existed, uh, but was, was not a, a major topic at all. And I do remember my first year in graduate school. So I went to graduate school in North Carolina, where there are many great universities. Yeah. And so all of the plant molecular biologists at those universities would gather each fall, um, alternating between the mountains and the beach, which is very nice thing about North Carolina. <laughs> and we'd have this North Carolina plant molecular biology retreat. And that first year that I went to it, the speaker was a man named David Balcom, who had just made these amazing discoveries about small RNAs, which are in part what's triggering methylation in plants. And so he, he was kind of like our keynote speaker and he gave this great talk. And I was just really hooked on it. And it became a really important part of plant molecular biology and, and really molecular biology in general over the next few years. And because I was in a genetics program, I had many other colleagues who were interested in it. We um, a few years later, we as students hosted a symposium on the topic. Um, so it's something I really, really became interested in. And so when I then went looking for postdocs, David Balcom was one of those on my list. I was also very interested in um, going even farther from Arizona, going to Europe for a postdoc, and he is in the UK. Um, and so actually, that is where I ended up postdocing. Um, so again, I guess it's another case where I got bit by the bug early and then things just kind of worked out. That's very cool. I mean, how does that feel? You know, and obviously you have surrounded yourself with people, experts in the direction that, you know, really intrigued you and that you wanted to go. But I mean, how does that feel when, you know, you're uh, attempting these scientific goals and projects when, um, you know, there's a lot of people that don't know, that don't understand, you know, are you just, what, what are your, what is your goal in moving this, you know, this, this field forward? And I mean, what are some of the things that, um, you know, will help all kinds of scientists as, as this goes further along? Um, 
So I think some of the, it, it's certainly the case in the early days of the discovery of small RNAs. So if I didn't say it, David Balcom was one of the first, the first people to see small RNAs. Um, we had no idea that they were out there at all. And it turns out they're not just in plants, they're in a wide variety of organisms doing a lot of very interesting things. And so we have even, you know, therapeutics that are used on humans now based on these small RNAs. So fundamentally, I like to study very basic concepts in biology and just understand stuff. Sometimes I say that I never grew out of that phase of a child of always like, why, why, you know? So I just wanna know stuff. And I think you can never predict when a discovery that you make will have these really wide connections that can affect many, many, many things. Um, and so though I've also nearly always focused in plants because I think plants are just the most amazing and important organisms, I am aware that if we understand a bit about how epigenetic marks are passed from one generation to the next, and even thinking more broadly about that, how is the information encoded in the genome passed from one generation to the next? that even if the mechanism might be different in humans or in you know starfish or whatever other organism out there maybe the the general concepts will be the same that is uh, you know one of the things when when i uh came to biofive almost uh, about 10 years ago now um i I didn't realize again i am a non-scientist i've done communications my whole life i've done science communication but I'm not a scientist and, and not had not done it in such a broad interdisciplinary, um, you know, institute before. And it was so fascinating to me, you know, some of the very first people I met when I came here were plant scientists whose work had, you know, again, like you, loved plants, uh, found just, you know, so much that could be learned from them and, and that could help sort of every living, living organism. But just, I was fascinated by how much of what you're learning can be potentially applied um, to other living organisms and, and human beings. And, and like you said, in therapeutics. And um, one of the really great things I find about Bio5 is I learn your all of your stories and how, how does that sort of interdisciplinary environment, um, not just at BioFive, pretty much at the U of A, I think U of A does a pretty good job of, um, you know, uh, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk of interdisciplinarity. How does that help you in your work? Um, I think one of the, the ways that I find it most helpful is in um, techniques and approaches. Uh, as a someone who's studying fundamentally molecular biology. And what I mean by that is a lot of DNA, how DNA works, how do we measure when genes get turned on and off. DNA is, is DNA. Whatever organism you're looking at, it's the same. And so if I have colleagues in the biochemistry department or up in the med school who have you know, developed a, a new approach to look at some aspect of molecular biology, it's usually fairly easy to adopt their protocols to plants. Um, and same thing, we might have approaches that, that we've been working on that will apply to their system. So we have on campus a group called the RNA Salon, uh, which is a kind of a, all the RNA biologists on campus get together once a month. Uh, and 
that's been one of the things that we've been able to share there are different approaches for how to deal with RNA, which is of course the product that's made when DNA is turned on. Um, and that's been helpful, people from all across campus. Well, that is very cool. You have your own uh, group. I'm pretty, I'm pretty jealous about yeah. that. That sounds like fun. I quite like our name as well, which comes from, um, we, the, the group was actually started, I think we were called the RNA Club or something like that. And then the, um, the genetics, though, who funds us? Oh, I should know this. It probably is the RNA Society. They started <laughs> nationwide calling these RNA salons and it makes me think we're like in Paris. Yeah, very nice. for sure. Uh, yeah, I hope you have some wine with, <laughs> with, the, with the discussion of- uh, Not on campus, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, separate checks, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, that's amazing. That's really, you know, I, I love that. I really do. I love, again, that there's groups at U of A that do different versions of a salon perhaps, but- um, yeah. That's really, you know, that's, that's why I think the U of A produces so much incredible work and, and advancement in STEM and innovation is, is because of that, people talking together. And um, so, well, and, you know, the other thing that comes from it, just very pragmatically, we even use equipment, a lot of equipment from colleagues in other departments, because some of this yeah. equipment's very expensive or um, specialized, and you want to use it used as much as possible all the time. So that's also been very helpful, those interdisciplinary connections. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing we talk about when people come to visit our, our buildings is, is that concept as well. And in its very design um, was that idea, these open labs and spaces that people could share, this expensive equipment, this complex equipment and help one another, um, you know, just, just sort of um, really partner in yeah, as you said, even the most pragmatic ways. So that's 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 really interesting. Um, switching gears a little bit because I know that um, you know uh, being a scientist isn't um, isn't enough work for you. So I know um, you also have a great passion for teaching. Um, I know you were the winner of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences Bart Cardin Early Career Faculty Teaching Award. Um, congratulations on that. Um, I like. That's uh, amazing. Um, talk a little bit about how you know you you incorporate this this goal of of being a researcher, moving the needle in, in your field of interest, and then also helping to develop um, that next generation um, of scientists as as you go. I know you already talked about starting that process early, but what are some of the specific ways you you do that? Yeah, it's it's definitely a balance. Um, balancing act, I guess. Uh, I um, am lucky enough now to be teaching uh, pretty close to my area. So I teach plant genetics and genomics to advanced undergraduates and beginning graduate students. Um, and, and so it's a topic that I love. It's really easy to be energized about it, which I think helps. Uh, it's also an area that moves very quickly. Uh, and so I find that um, more than in previous courses, I have to, you know, kind of redesign a bit every year. Uh, and that process then helps me stay on top of things. And one of the things that I've incorporated, because I think it, uh, it's so important for learning, is even though it's technically a lecture course, every week students are doing activities. And as much as possible, I'm giving them the type of genomic data 
that that we use nowadays. I've, I've scaled everything down into small size because you know you need a lot of computational power for the full data sets. Mm -hmm. um, but I want them kind of hands on understanding. This is this is what a genome looks like. This is how a genome behaves, um, particularly for the graduate students. This is how we know that we know this is what a genome looks like, right? I think that's, the, for me, that's the transition from undergrad to graduate school. It's no longer about just gathering knowledge, but how do you know that is true? Uh, which I don't, is maybe something we need to be teaching to our undergraduates at all levels, science yeah. and, and otherwise, given our current yeah. um, world state. How do you know something is true? And one of the things I found most difficult in this class, actually, is students come in saying, you know, this is the corn genome. I, I know I can download it from that website. This is the corn genome. And to have them understand that that sequence is our best approximation of the corn genome. And, you know, corn's an important one. We've done pretty well with it, but pick some other crop, you know, black eyed peas, cowpea, very common. Is, is that really the entirety of that genome or are there pieces missing? Is there the possibility that two pieces got stuck together in the wrong direction, right? All of these kind of things happen in genomes a lot. And so I want them to understand that process of how to, how to put a genome sequence together because they probably do it at some point. But I also want them to really question everything they're seeing because inevitably you'll do an experiment and something will seem not quite right. And you assume you've done something wrong. When in reality, your underlying assumption that that genome was exactly what it should be, that's what's where the error is. Um, and that, you know, obviously I'm teaching genomics, so we talk about it with genomes, but I think that's true with many, many things, getting them to, to really question. Yeah, I mean, so much of, of, again, what we do in our case program with even high schoolers, as you said, as young as possible um, is, um, is about that, right? Asking questions and being comfortable with the fact that, you know, there might not be an answer. The answer you think it might be is, uh, you know, as you said, has many possibilities that make it not so. Um, and, and, you know, but then it not taking away from um, your power as a scientist. I mean, your power as a scientist comes from the questioning, you know, and I think uh, as we're young and, and not, again, not just in science to your, to your point, like you're, you're trained to think like, I need to be an expert in this and to be an expert, I need to know everything. I need to know everything and do everything as well as I possibly can. And it's, it's kind of a contradiction, you know, in science that yeah. and I think it's important what you're teaching them, um, that it is as much about asking those questions and well, and I think, um, one of the things that I also try to weave into it is it's not pointing out, oh, look, there's an error in this genome. They made a mistake. That's wrong. But it's kind of pointing out there. This is the best possible that it can have at the time. And it might still be wrong. And that the work that you do might be the same. You think you're right. You've done the best that you can. But you might be wrong, and that's okay, because then you learn something and you move on to the next step. So I often try to, um, when I'm talking through my research, especially with students, I point out to them times when, like, we have a paper where we were very convinced this particular gene was only going to be found in these particular species, had 
great reasons why that was going to be the case. And we went looking and I was wrong. The gene was absolutely everywhere. You know, so I point out to them what we, where we thought we were going was totally wrong. We went somewhere else. I also have a, a paper from my postdoc, a paper published in Nature, that I think is now substantially wrong. We have just learned more. I shouldn't say substantially wrong. I mean, everything that's in it is correct, but our interpretation of that has changed. Um, and that's, that's just totally okay. Uh, you know, you, you got to be happy being incorrect sometimes and not knowing things because that's the way you get even better. So. I love that. I, I think you need to go and talk in front of every single class at the UA <laughs> and start off with that because I, I think yeah. it's so fundamental to building people's uh, self-esteem for the right reasons and the right reasons for them, you know, going along in a career path. and. Yeah. It's, well, this is certainly not just me, right? This is the concept yeah. called the growth mindset, where you yeah. never think about you being good at some things or bad at other things, that in anything, you can get better at it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also, I don't know where this was coined, but the idea that fail as a word stands for first attempt in learning. Love that. Right? You know, oh that's, my gosh. you got to make mistakes in order to, to learn something. I love that. That's amazing. Um, it kind of, I have uh, in doing some research on you, I, I actually, we found um, that you had once uh, wrote a blog post titled Combating the Imposter Syndrome in Academic Science. Um, you probably are as smart as they think. Mm. Um, which is amazing. And it's sort of, I think that was a nice segue that I didn't even intend. But just to ask about that, like, you know, what, I mean, was this kind of thinking what spurred you to, to you know, pen that and, and put yeah. that out there and just, you know, how, you know, yeah, what was, what was sort of the impetus for that? Yeah, I, um, when I was finishing up my postdoc and on the job market, actually, I think I probably had, I, I might have even accepted the position at, at UA. I was at a conference talking with, uh, very prominent scientist in my field. It was breakfast, I remember. He introduced me to a NIH program officer, and, and I don't remember exactly what I said to him in that conversation, but I obviously said something about being really unsure that I was going to be able to do anything good as a faculty member. And he just looked at me and he said, Becky, have you heard of the imposter syndrome? And he he explained it to me that I had never, never known it before. And if and of our listeners don't know, it's the kind of uh, persistent feeling that you're an imposter, that you're not as good as everybody thinks you are. Uh, and it was like earthquake level, you know, experience. And so I've learned more about it since then. I attended a really great workshop um, run by the, the Vice Provost for Academic Affairs Office um, and really got involved with that, um, further developed that workshop and actually put it on, helped put it on here at U of A. Um, I, I've done it sometimes at other universities uh, when I'm on a seminar visit to just, I think, enlighten people. Because the thing about imposter syndrome is everybody um, who feels it, which is many people, keep it quiet. Um, but it's, it's very easy to recognize in other people. And so there, there's some concrete strategies that you can do to um, help kind of fight those thoughts. Um, and mostly, I think it's just letting people know about it um, and supporting them um, in understanding that it's it's super common. Some people hate the term 
um, because it sounds like a syndrome, like there's something wrong with you. Um, but I think it's just um, a way of acknowledging feelings that many of us have. Yeah. It's being a human. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's, it's, uh, yeah. I find so interesting that, and I mean, again, everybody does it in, in you know, all different kinds of fields and um, certainly, you know, in my past in the, in the business world and industry and, and science, I mean, it, in, in marketing, I mean, everybody, uh, you know, has their own versions of that, but man, is it a relief if you learn early on that being a human isn't being perfect and isn't, yeah. you know, knowing everything and, and uh you know, that's, that's okay. So, well, and I think um, it's, it's particularly interesting from an academic science perspective. And so when I give a workshop on it now, it's from that perspective, mm -hmm. because we view ourselves as very logical people who, you know, take in evidence and draw measured conclusions. Um, and so you can kind of take that as a way of, of showcasing to people, what you're feeling is somewhat illogical. I mean, it's, yeah. it's natural, but it doesn't make logical sense. One of my favorites is the kind of argument that people have sometimes, oh, my, my mentor tells me that I've done really good work, that they're really happy, da, da, but they don't know. They're so smart. They don't know how stupid I am. And it's like, you know, if, if you value this person and you think that they are a smart, accomplished scientist mentoring you, then you need to trust them, right? But, but no, it's, I'm so stupid that I'm able to fool them yeah. Right. It's just not logical. Yeah. 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 That's uh, that's amazing. Um, and thank you for your work in that because I think as much as it, it's important, your science is important. Um, you know, caring scientists and 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 teachers that you know help help with that alongside of the knowledge piece is is super important. So. Um, so tell me, as we kind of start to wrap up, I don't uh, want to take too much more of your time, but tell me what's next for your work. I mean, what in the, what's happening in the next six months that you're excited about? And uh, tell us tell us what's going on. Um, well, we're so the kind of main thrust of the research right now is we're looking at these tiny, small RNAs. So they're only um, about 24 nucleotides long, which is very small. Um, and they decide where methylation, uh, this DNA methylation, gets placed in a genome. And what we're particularly interested in is that um, in the seed, there are these three different tissues. There's the embryo that's going to grow into the, you know, the plant when that seed germinates. There's something called endosperm, which is food for that embryo. And then there's a seed coat wrapping the whole thing up. Um, I sometimes do a, a, a like hands-on science thing with kindergartners about seeds, and I tell them that the mama plant sends her baby out with lunch and a jacket, and <laughs> the, the sperm to feed it, and the seed coat to Perfect. protect it. Um, and what's interesting is that coat is genetically identical to the mother, but the endosperm also carries dad's genes. So it's a product of fertilization. It's actually very much like placenta in humans, which is also a product of fertilization. Um, so you get these kind of interesting interactions between the seed coat and that endosperm. And we think that the seed coat might be producing small RNAs that is moving into the endosperm to help tell the endosperm, 
you know, how to grow and develop, how much, like how much food does this baby need in the next generation? I'm, I'm really simplifying and personifying. Yeah, you yeah. kind of get the idea. Um, and I'm really interested in, in this area in particular because this is the first time the maternal and the paternal genome come together at fertilization. And that endosperm has to grow and develop very rapidly. In fact, it gets well on its way to development before the embryo starts developing. And so I think that this is kind of like a, a test bed to decide, are the maternal and paternal genomes going to be compatible? Can they exist together and create another organism? And what can mom's genes from the seed code maybe give some information to help them be more compatible um, and to help that seed be successful? That's kind of the broad idea. We've got a long way to go. That's amazing. Well, thank you for all you're doing. I think, again, your work has great implications, not only for plants, but, you know, again, for other living things. And um, I, I'm so glad there are people like you that um, had this this passion for something and saw it through, through you know, for, through your education and and now have found this uh, really unique space to, to do what you love and, and what you wish you're good at. And um, that's really an inspiration and uh, also appreciate what you do for, for our students and for young people and, and helping to, 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 again, make the next generation have the same types of experience that you, you were able to have. So it was really great to talk to you today. Um, I, I'm so glad we got this opportunity and um, thanks again for all you do. Great. It was great to talk to you too, Lisa. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Science Talks. Continue the conversation with us next time as we learn more about the amazing science happening at the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute.